I recently read this by a Christian author. This is a quote. He said, to understand Christmas is to understand basic Christianity. To understand Christmas is to understand basic Christianity. And I agree. If you get down the meaning of Christmas, that's Christianity 101. That's really the whole Bible. You get it. You understand it. Uh, and that's why we're taking this month to really do an Advent series. Advent is a fancy word, and it means the arrival of a noteworthy person. And Christmas is about the arrival of the most dignified, noteworthy person in history, um, Jesus Christ. But many people are confused about the real meaning of Christmas. And if you're confused about the meaning of Christmas, that confusion is going to carry over into confusion about Christianity. What's the meaning of Christianity? What's the message? How do we respond to it? Why is it good news? Is it good news at all? And so this morning, I want to talk about the real meaning of Christmas. And the name of the message is, Behold Your King. Behold Your King. What is the real meaning of Christmas? Now, I'm going to, not going to stand up here and uh, talk to you about how Christmas has been commercialized. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? You don't need a preacher to stand up here and tell you that. You already have people, news pundits that are telling you that. At the same time, they're advertising Black Friday specials, right? Um, now, I want to uh, tell you about a much more sinister force that's, I believe, burying the meaning of Christmas. And I want to do that by telling you about a Christmas story that's really popular and familiar that you probably know all about. How many people have read, heard, watched the movie Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens? Okay, just about probably every person in here. From the time you're little and watch cartoons or Scrooge McDuck or whatever, uh, we've all encountered that story at some point. So I want to tell you about that story a little bit. Uh, in the very beginning... There's an old man named Scrooge, and this is the way that he is described. Check this out. Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. That's the very beginning of the story, but at the very end, you find a transformed Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a changed person. He's changed. He's uh, seemingly more kind and benevolent and compassionate and happy. What happened? What happened to Scrooge? He changed. That's pretty obvious. And my question is, how did he change? What produced the changed, radically generous old man in the end of the story from the hardened, covetous, wretching old sinner in the very beginning? Well, here's another quote. Now, this is the very end of that story, and I read this recently. This is from the horse's mouth himself, okay? This is the way Charles Dickens wrote it. This is what Scrooge said at the very end when the third spirit visited him and scared him. He said, Spirit, hear me. I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I have been. Spirit, assure me that I may yet change my fate by an altered life. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Now listen, that's about the extent of religion in that story, A Christmas Carol. It really is. Scrooge went from being controlled by the fear of poverty in the very beginning of this story to being controlled by the fear of judgment at the very end of this story. He was controlled by two different fears. Fear of being poor and fear of being judged, fear of punishment. And my question is, is that Christianity? Is that how we are changed and converted? Before you answer, let me add something, okay? Most people grab hold of this story right here and they say, now that right there, 
Forget the commercialization of Christmas. That's the true meaning of Christmas. In fact, this may surprise you, false religions love this story. They love it, which should be a red flag on warning, warning, danger. In fact, let me read a quote to you by the president of the Church of Latter-day Saints. That's the head of the Church of Mormon. Okay, he said this about that story. He said, I personally feel it is inspired of God. Man, just that. It brings out the best within human nature. It gives hope. It motivates change. We can turn from the paths which would lead us down and with a song in our hearts, follow a star and walk toward the light. So let me ask you a question. Is the gospel according to Charles Dickens good news? Oh man, praise God. Our church is growing in an understanding. <laughs> is, it, is, is the meaning of Christmas getting off the naughty list and tipping the, the karma scales in your favor, if there is such a thing and there's not? Is that the true meaning of Christmas? My question is, where's Jesus in this story? It's interesting, if you read it, he ain't nowhere to be found. I mean, on Christmas morning, Scrooge goes to church, but we don't know what he hears. We don't know if he hears any good news. Apparently, the good news was the third ghost spirit of Christmas future that visited him. That was his good news. But that's not the good news of Christianity. And I would go to, so far as to say this, guys. You're going to be seeing a lot of sappy, cheesy, Hallmark, cardish type movies right now. And I would surmise, and I'm not, up here, I'm not up here angry, ranting, sweating. Most of them are going to miss the true meaning of Christmas. They're going to mislead you. And a lot of Christians are going to buy right into it. This, this is in alignment with our heart. This is what our hearts crave right here. I will amend my life. I will try so hard to keep Christmas in my heart all year long. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, when you reach the end of your life, the ghost of Christmas future will say, it's enough. That's enough. I'll let you in. That's what many people think Christmas is about. But let me tell you something. Nothing on this cursed planet can be your savior. Nothing on this cursed planet. That's why good news had to come from, from beyond. That sounds like a creature feature, doesn't it? It came from beyond, but it did. That's about the birth of Jesus. This cursed planet was doomed. So our Savior had to come from outside of us, not within us. I read an article in the New York Times a few years ago at Christmas, and the article said this. This is New York Times now. The meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph, which I agree with that, it will, and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. We will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Now again, that sounds lovely, doesn't it? Sounds like a Hallmark card somebody wrote. But my question is this, is that true? I mean, I'm an, I'm an analytical thinker, and I just want to know, is that true? Can we put together a world of unity and peace? Can we do it? I mean, the idea is that we're going to create this world, we're going to produce it, we're going to build it, and we're going to sustain it. But can we? Here's a better question. Have we? Have we done it? How long have we had, guys? I mean, if you're a young earther or old earther, how many thousands of years has humanity had to create this world of unity and peace? And how, how are we stacking up? <laughs> is the world better? Or is it worse? I mean, think about it. We hear politicians make promises like this, like this every single year. My question is, do we have the ability to do this? And, and let's just take one example, okay? A world of unity and peace. That would mean poverty goes bye-bye, which is, poverty is a terrible thing. And I wish it would go away, don't you? But here's a problem. Number one, Jesus said, the poor you have with you always. I'm kind of like the poor for this church, right? You're going to have me with you always. I ain't going nowhere. <laughs> but Jesus said that. But that aside, that fact aside, poverty's not going anywhere until Jesus comes back. 
let's just hypothetically, just for kicks and giggles, just try this out, okay? If you're going to eradicate poverty, you're going to have to overcome a few pretty tall hurdles. Number one, so, don't get mad at me, okay? Some people don't work because they don't want to. They're lazy, okay? I, know, I knew I'd get an amen out of that, all right. Okay, so what you're telling me is that you're going to turn a lazy person into a hardworking person. Now, how in the world are you going to do that? Let's just say you could. You've got obstacle number two. Some people that aren't able to work because they don't have the ability, they need some help. They need help. Uh, and sometimes the help that they need, those people are too greedy to help them, right? Now, I'm not getting political, I promise. It's just hypothetical. So you're going to have to turn a lazy person into a hardworking person, and then you've got to turn a greedy person into a radically generous person. How many people in here think you can do that? Anybody up to that this morning? Yeah, I didn't think so. No. And then there's people who aren't able to work at all, and you've got to fix them. Can you do that? No, you can't. And no politician can do it either. And look, I think we should try. Absolutely. Look, and I'm not, I'm not up here saying that things like poverty and injustice and racism. Look, Christians should care the most about those things. And we should do the most to eradicate them and, and, alleviate, and alleviate them, right? We ought to alleviate, try to uh, relieve any suffering, both temporary and eternal suffering. But to say that we're going to create a world of unity and peace, I'm sorry, but I, I'm just going to vote no on that. You know, we've had thousands of years to do it, and not only have we not gotten any better, we've gotten actually worse. Do you know what, do you know what um, the Bible actually says this in Galatians 4? It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Have you ever thought about what does that mean, the fullness of time? Well, listen, if Jesus would have been born to Adam and Eve, and he was the first human being born after the fall... Would you and I actually believe that he was the only way to be saved? Would we, if he was the first human being born that gave it a shot? No. And God knows we're skeptical. So God gave us billions of people who claim to be saviors, right? Politicians, celebrities, educators, philosophers, philanthropists. We've had systems. We've had religions. And how have they done? Are we any better? Aren't there more wars today? Isn't there more tyranny and oppression, both external and internal? You know, I used to be able to count on one hand the people that I personally knew that took their own life. I can't do that anymore. Over 10 people that I knew who were my friends have taken their own lives. Why? Why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is there's internal struggles just as well as external struggles. We've got more prisons. We've got more crime. We've got more divorce. Pornography, I mean, I could, I could go on and on with the statistics. All that to say, Jesus, God in his wisdom waited till we had all the potential saviors, and he said, see, you guys are stuck. That's the message of the Old Testament. I've fallen and I can't get up. And so when the fullness of time had come, God in his ultimate wisdom knew we had exhausted all of our possibilities, and he said, now I'll give you the real rescue and deliverer that you need. And that's why... When the fullness of, of time had come, Jesus came. So I'm going to vote no on the New York Times article and the Christmas Carol and every other movie that holds out another Savior other than Jesus. Because listen, our problems are so deep, they're so profound, they're so pervasive. We need a Savior. We need a Savior who is with us, who is for us, and who is like us. And that's what this text talks about. What do we need saving from? Don't you love the Bible's precision? Listen to this verse. The angel tells Joseph, you 
shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Behold your Savior. Jesus was born not as a, a good example for us, okay? He was born as our Savior because we need rescue. We need deliverance. We need radical help from outside of ourselves. Beatrice Webb, uh, whom many people consider to be an architect of Britain's modern welfare, welfare state, she wrote this over 100 years ago. She said, somewhere in my diary around 1890, I wrote these words, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in man. How little you can count on changing some of these by any change in the social machinery. No amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb the bad impulse. So who is able to curb the bad impulse or to change the nature that produces the bad impulse? Only one person. So Christianity, listen, it doesn't agree with the optimistic thinkers that say we can fix ourselves. It doesn't. But neither does Christianity agree with the pessimistic talkers who say there's no hope. There's nothing that can be done. Christianity has the answer. Christmas actually is God's answer to a very deep and disturbing problem. We need a Savior. But listen, that, that digs at us. A Savior. We don't like that. There's something a little bit embarrassing about that. There's something a little bit edgy and offensive about that. If we're honest... Even Christians still, that just grates against us. We bristle to hear it. A Savior that has implications, doesn't it? We need saving. We're sinful. We're in need of rescue. All of us. It says something about our true condition that's hard to swallow. We need serious rescue because we're captives. We're in prison. We're enslaved, the Bible says. But that's a little bit embarrassing. You know, a famous poet wrote these words, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Would you agree with that? And women. Most men and women lead lives of quiet desperation. We're languishing. I mentioned suicide. We're languishing on the inside, but we're too proud, too self-sufficient and self-righteous to cry out for help. In fact, I read a disturbing article. Uh, one of our children, uh, no, it was actually my wife. She was choking on a grape. It really scared our family. Um, I mean, I thought it was the end. <laughs> and we, I was reading an article and it said, every year in North America, 4,000 people die. 4,000 perfectly healthy people die from choking. Now, most of those people, do you know why they die? This blew me away, guys. Blew me away. You know why they die? Shame, embarrassment, and humiliation. You say, what? Yeah, here it is. Check this out. Here's the scenario. You're in a five-star restaurant. Okay, <clears throat> you're in a two-star restaurant. <laughs> Just be realistic here, okay? You've got on nice clothing, there's classical music, maybe there, heck, there's a pianist playing, I don't know. And all of a sudden, this piece of grisly steak gets stuck in your esophagus. And uh, your eyes are getting red, and everyone's enjoying their self, and silverware's clinking, and man, this thing's not, you can't swallow it, you can't cough it up, now, now you can't breathe, and you're really embarrassed. So what do you do? You stand up and say, help, I'm choking! No, you know what most people do when they choke? And this is good, this is more than a sermon, this is... For your, for your health, okay? Most people take a one-way trip to the bathroom to, to cough it up in private. They don't want to make a scene. Let's not embarrass anybody. Not only are people who choking, not only do people who choke get embarrassed, the people around the table get embarrassed and they avert their eyes. Seriously, they're embarrassed for the person who's embarrassed. So usually what happens is the, people, the person choking goes to the bathroom to cough it up in, in private, in seclusion, and it becomes a one-way trip. 
or they don't make it that far and you avert your eyes and the next sound you hear is the thud of an unconscious body hitting the floor and it's too late. But you get to the bottom of that and what is it? It's pride. People don't want to stand up and cause a scene. Even though carrying your body out in a bag, that's a pretty big scene too, right? Shame, embarrassment, and pride. Pride causes so many people to miss out on the good news of Jesus. That's why choking is called the, the silent killer. So, people are dying in their sins, and they need help. They need rescue, um, but they're ashamed and they're embarrassed. So, what did God do? Well, God sent us a Savior. What kind of Savior did He send us? The kind of Savior that we need. So, here's our sermon outline today. We need a Savior who is for us. We need a Savior who is like us, but unlike us. And we need a Savior who is with us. So, point number one... We need a Savior who is for us. Now, look at this verse here, because the, the angel here is telling Joseph, look down in verse 20, he's telling Joseph something very profound and alarming. As Joseph was considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This child is from God. God is sending you somebody to help you. He's sending you somebody to deliver you. He's sending you somebody to rescue you. This child is from God. This, this is a Savior who is for you. Now, if you consider Greek mythology and other religions, it wasn't uncommon for a God to be sent down to the earth, especially in Greek mythology. But sometimes the visitation from this God wasn't good news at all. <laughs> sometimes the Greek gods and goddesses were unpredictable. They were irrational. They were angry. And to be honest, sometimes they came down not to help people, but to hook up with people. And that's why you had demigods and half-humans and half-gods and like Hercules and whatnot, okay? So this was, a, this was a weird idea that the Holy Spirit is going to send a child. It's going to fill Mary's womb with a Savior. But this Savior is going to be actually for humanity. A Savior who is actually for them. For them. That is something that's very strange. That would have been strange to Joseph and it would have been strange to a lot of the Jews Unless you were just talking about somebody who was coming to deliver you from political oppression, the Romans, right? That's what they were looking for. That's what they wanted. But God sends us a Savior who is for us, and, and His name is Jesus, and that means that He's going to deliver us from our sins, right? From our sins. Um, this is something else that digs against humanity. Why do we need saving from our sins? If you already know this, just let me rehearse this for a minute. There's a really clear verse in the Bible, Romans chapter 3, Verse 23, and it says this, For all, say it with me, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short. We fall so short. Here's God's standard, and here's, here's us way down here, right? We fall so short. But human beings are self-righteous, and we're tricky. We're clever. So you know what we do? We find somebody else that we think is in a much worse category than us, and, and we really feel good about ourselves. You're like, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty bad person, but oh my word, look at, look at this guy over here. Look at this girl. We do it with parenting. We do it with everything, you know. We'll find somebody who has kids that are just having a fit in the checkout line, and maybe our kid has our iPhone at the moment, and we're like, I'm doing, I'm killing this parenting thing, you know. <laughs> we do that. But listen, the Bible doesn't let us get away with that. The Bible's got us pegged, folks. All have sinned. Everyone and has fallen short of the glory of God. So let me give you a little illustration here. You know, the furthest east point on the United States, if I did my research right, is a little place in Florida called Singer Island. Can you see it there? Singer Island. 
and the further, the furthest western point um, in Africa is in Sahara, and it's it's a little village there. I can't even pronounce, but it's right there. So if you went from Florida all the way to the Western Sahara, it's just over 4,000 miles. Now let's say we get everyone gathered down on the beach at Florida and we say, look, everyone jump as far as you can. We're all going to try to make it to, to Western Sahara, okay? And we, we all jumped. Some people would exceed others, right? If you get a Carl Lewis or somebody like that jumping 18, 19 feet, they do okay. Uh, other people, not so much. But that's not the point. The point is, when you consider the gap, <laughs> we all fail. We all get a big fat F. We flunk. That's what that verse means in Romans 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's glory is so bright, so brilliant. He's so holy, so just. His standard is so unattainable to us um, that we're all doomed. All of us. So don't look around at the Charles Mansons and the parents that you think are, are, are wreaking havoc. Look no further than that verse in your own heart. Nobody measures up to God's standard. We all need a Savior. The Bible has us pegged. It's not improvement that we need. It's not education that we need. We're not just victims of our environment. We're all sinners, the Bible says. We're sinners by birth. We're sinners by nature. We're sinners by choice. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And we need a Savior. And let me, let me level with you. All of this talk about the exclusivity of Jesus, we're, we're good at that. Christians are good at saying He's the only way. But I think where we need to work is explaining to people why. Why is Jesus the only way? He is. I acknowledge that. The Bible acknowledges that. There's no other way to God except through Jesus, John 14 says. But why is he the only way? Because listen, the greatest danger and the deepest and most profound problem you have is not outside of you. It's inside of you, okay? It's not like you have a bed bug problem outside of you. You've got a parasite problem. You've got pinworms, okay? You, you can't escape this problem. You can't get away from it. That just grossed all of you out. I'll never get past that, will I? You can't escape yourself. Paul Tripp had a great quote, and I'm sorry if you can't read that. I'm going to read it for you. Check this out. He's talking about Christmas. Whenever you see people do the unexpected or the unusual, and he's talking about the virgin birth, okay? It is natural to ask yourself why they thought that their radical action was necessary. God has to invade our world in the person of Jesus because there was simply no other way and why was there no other way? Because our big problem in life is not familial or historical or societal or political or relational or ecclesiastical or financial. The biggest, darkest thing that all of us have to face isn't outside of us, it's inside. If you had none of the above problems in your life, you would still be in grave danger because of the danger that you are to yourself. Do you hear what he's saying there? Listen, you can run from a bad relationship you can even run from a dysfunctional church. You can move out of a dangerous neighborhood, but you cannot escape yourself. You can't. People try. That's why there's narcotics. That's why people have addictions. If you want to call it that, enslavement, whatever. People are trying to run from themselves, and they can't. You cannot escape the deepest, darkest, most profound and dangerous problem that you have, which is you are you. You are a sinner, and you need a savior. You need somebody to rescue you. And so point number two is this. That's point number one. Point number two, not only do we need a Savior who is for us, and what a thought, huh? A God who is actually for us, who draws near to sinners, who's the friend of sinners. He didn't come to judge or destroy us. He came to rescue us. Not only do you need a, a, a Savior who is for you, you need a Savior who is like you. Someone who can understand you. And listen, 
This is the miracle of Christmas. Look what the angel said to Mary here. He said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin shall conceive and have a son. Why in the world is the virgin birth necessary? Have you ever thought about that? Why is the virgin birth necessary? Because listen, we need somebody who can accurately represent us. If God just came down and his spirit tried to fulfill the demands of the law, it doesn't work that way, right? We need somebody who's an image bearer, who has a human body, who lives a human life in a fallen world. Somebody who understands us, somebody who can identify with us, somebody who knows what it's like to live in a fallen world under a fallen government with broken systems, somebody who knows what it's like to be tempted by the devil. Don't you want somebody to save you who actually knows the pressure you faced when you have temptations from um, the devil and from the world, from religion? Somebody that knows the pressures of religion? Jesus knew all those things. Why? Because he crawled inside a human body and became a man. He became what he was not. That's a deep, profound theological truth. God became a man in the virgin birth. And listen, not just any man, sinners beget sinners. All of my children are sinners because they have my nature. But Jesus did not have Joseph's nature. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he bypassed. I know it's a deep and profound thought to think about. It, it blows your mind. Jesus didn't have Joseph's nature. If he did, he would have had to save himself. And he couldn't have done that, right? Now, Jesus has the nature of God and the nature uh, of a human being that's not fallen. Jesus is not a sinner. He never sinned in word, he never sinned in thought, he never sinned in deed, ever. Jesus is our perfect representative. He had a human nature, he had a divine nature, but he did not have a sin nature. Listen to what this verse says here. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted just like us, yet without sin. So that's why you had this virgin birth. Jesus did not have a sin nature like us. So he's like us, he's a human being, he can understand us and our weaknesses and represent us, but he's unlike us. He's pure, he's spotless, he's without flaw. He's the spotless Lamb of God. So here's point number three, moving along here. We need a Savior who is for us. We need a Savior who is like us. But here's the big one, guys. Here's the big one. We need a Savior who is with us. With us. And listen, this is the real mystery and miracle of Christmas. It's not so mysterious in comparison how a... Uh, virgin teenage girl could give birth to a son. That's not the real mystery of Christmas. The real mystery of Christmas is in the name of Jesus. His name is Jesus. He shall save us from our sins. But the name Emmanuel, do you know what that word means? It says here in the text, um, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. That's the real meaning and the mystery of Christmas. That is profound. That is very profound. How in the world can God, a holy and a just God, who can't look upon sin favorably, who can't tolerate the presence of sinners before him, how in the world can that holy God come and dwell with unholy people? C.S. Lewis wrote this years ago. Listen to this really carefully. He said, in the Christian story, God comes down, down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he had created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, 
then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks surf the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. That's quite a picture, isn't it? God coming down from the glory and the heights of heaven and plunging down into this ooze and slime and black decay to rescue us. He didn't discard us and say, you know what, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. I was in California, my final year of seminary, and one of my buddies after church invited my family and his family. He said, let's go to Lake Balboa, man. They got paddle boats there and we can hang out. I said, okay. Uh, and I always dressed up nice back then for church. Um, and I had slacks on, I had a tucked-in shirt, a belt, a tie, and he convinced me, he said, man, take your, take your oldest daughter, and I think Kirsten was probably three or four at the time. Uh, he said, take your daughter, man, let's go paddle with, with our daughters out here, we'll get in the paddle boat. So we go out on Lake Balboa, and it's, it's kind of a gross lake. It's murky, it's dark, you can't see to the bottom, who knows what's out there. So we're paddling around, and in about five minutes, I heard the most terrible sound you could ever hear when you're in a paddle boat. I heard this sound of metal falling out of my pocket, clinking together, and then bloop, splashing into the water. And I looked down and I instinctively grabbed my pants pocket and there was nothing in there. And then I heard my daughter say, bye-bye. And she was looking at the water waving. And sure enough, my keys, my keys to our minivan at Lake Balboa disappeared. And my friend said, dude, jump in and get them. And I'm like, are you nuts? Are you nuts, man? Look at my clothes. You can't even see the bottom. Who knows what's down there? Some undiscovered creature with sharp you know, needlepoint venomous fangs or an alligator or a rusty sharp hook down there. I'm not going down there. It's not worth it. I counted the cost and I said, it's not worth it. I'll call AAA. I'll pay the fee and they'll come out, which they did. And Sarah had her purse, thankfully, with an extra set of keys hidden under the seat. So AAA came out and bailed us out. It wasn't worth it to me, but consider God with us. The, the great heights that, that God was at and the great depths to which he went didn't, he didn't hesitate. He did it, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He went down through the slime, through the ooze. And that's not, the word picture doesn't do us justice. He became sin, the Bible says. He became a curse for us. Do you know what it means to be a curse? It means that all of creation stands to its feet and applauds your damnation. That's what it means to be cursed by God. And Jesus became a curse. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He looked and he said, it's worth the trouble. It's worth the trouble to rescue and restore a fallen humanity. So when Jesus came to save us, he didn't go to the palace. He went to the manger and then he went to the most rejected, outcast, marginalized people. You see that in the gospels. He did that for us. Jesus is a savior for us, like us and with us. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, the child was called Emmanuel. I thought he was called Jesus. Well, look, God had a lot of names. Jesus had a lot of names. And in biblical times, names carried deep and profound meaning. It was the sum of all that you were, all of your qualities, all of your characteristics. And God had a lot of names. For example, he was called, um, he was called Elohim, which means God. He was called Yahweh, I Am. He was called Adonai, Sovereign Lord. He was called El Shaddai, which means God Most High. So when Jesus is called Emmanuel in Hebrew, that means something really, really important and special and profound. And do you know what it means? This is what it means. It means, it's three words actually in Hebrew. God, El, with, Im, and us, new. 
God with us. All the deep, rich theology packed into that word. Man, we could plumb the depths of that forever and never come up for air. God with us. And listen, here's the best part of that. The, the, the word with, the Hebrew preposition, this is not a fist bump or a side hug, okay? This is like snuggling up close to somebody, uniting with them, associating with them, taking company with them. It's God with us. And that's, that's a real head scratcher. That should blow our minds because, listen, if you know anything about God in the Old Testament, and this is, he's quoting the Old Testament. This was a prophecy, God with us. If you know anything about God in the Old Testament, he didn't hang out with sinners, okay? He didn't. If you saw God, you wouldn't live to tell about it. In fact, some of the most holy dudes in the Old Testament, they were scared to death. They were shaking in his presence. Moses had to be hidden in the cleft of a rock even to see God's hindquarters, okay, passing. If you saw God, you would die because the, the Bible says, no man shall see my face and live. Even in the tabernacle that was built so that God could come and meet with people, um, did you know there was a three-foot thick veil that was dropped there and only one man, one time a year, could go beyond that point. And when he went, he had to undergo all these thorough preparations so that he wouldn't die. And he had to wear a bell on the other side and tie a rope to his waist in case he died so somebody could pull him out without going back there and risking their own neck. No, there was, there was, God lived in a closed, gated community in the Old Testament, and there was a no trespassing sign, and violators will be shot on spot. That's why God with us should blow it. That's the real miracle in the mystery of Christmas. How in the world could that happen? And listen, Jesus Christ devoted his entire life to make God with us a reality. His entire life was fulfilling that promise. All of it was. Emmanuel means God with us. And that, that should blow our minds. God draws near sinners. You know, there was a time, even, I'm just being honest with you, straight up honest. There was a time, even after I graduated seminary, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, even after I graduated seminary, there was a time I was sitting in my office, and I don't know if it was a sermon I heard, but somebody said it, God draws near sinners. And I checked myself. I heard that, I'm like, that's not, that's not quite right. <laughs> Guys, wrap your head around that. Do you know... We reject the gospel in our heart, even as Christians sometimes. It took me a minute to wrap my mind around that statement and agree with it. Like, God, God can't draw near sinners. He wouldn't do that. That's exactly what the Christian message is. God draws near sinners. God befriends sinners. He draws near them. He delights in their company because he wants to change them and reconcile them and redeem them and save them. Isn't that amazing? That is the message of Christmas. Listen, it's not God against us we get. God above us we get. God apart from us we get. But God with us, no. That's just, there's just no compartment for human beings that really know who God is and who they are. Uh, that's hard to wrap your mind around. It's hard to agree with that. So in what ways was God with us? Well, two different ways that Jesus made this a reality. Number one, he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never lied. He never stretched the truth. He never dishonored his parents. He never lusted ever, not once. So wrap your mind around that. He was sinless and he was spotless. And secondly, he died on the cross and he suffered the agonies of hell that all of us deserve. Hell for all eternity. When Jesus was on the cross, listen, he wasn't just, he wasn't just suffering physical anguish. He was. He was whipped. He was beat. He didn't resemble a man. Probably looked like pounded hamburger meat on the cross, a bloody pulp. But beyond that, beyond that was him suffering the wrath of Almighty God. He was suffering separation from God, which all sin deserves. 
All sinners deserve to be separated from God forever. And Jesus, if any human being ever knew the verse, the meaning of the verse, um, God cannot tolerate sin, Jesus understood that. And that's why, somebody asked me last week, what does it mean when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what it means. When the Bible says that he became sin for us, Jesus became sin on the cross. And God cannot tolerate sin, so God forsook Jesus. That's amazing. It's humbling to think about that. That's why he cried. He didn't cry out, Father, Father. He cried out, my God. The relationship was broken. For, for, it, it blows our minds to think about it because what we deserve is separation from God for all eternity. And in a finite amount of time, Jesus, being both God and man, suffered that on our behalf. He took the full penalty. He, he made the payment for our sins. So in order to be... In order for Jesus to be God with us, he had to become, if you think about it, God instead of us. God instead of us. He had to take our place. He had to stand in our place, live the perfect life that we couldn't live, and take the punishment that all of us deserve. He had to become our divine substitute. So listen, Christmas isn't just about Jesus coming to the earth and saying, hey, you can do better than that. Try harder. Keep Christmas in your heart. Strive earnestly without ceasing, which was Buddha's last words. He didn't say that. Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died a horrible substitutionary death and he offers us that as his righteousness, a gift to us. And this word is not far from us, the Bible says. What do you have to do to get that? Listen to what Romans 10 said. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church at Rome and he said this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Isn't that an amazing promise? Listen, that's what Christmas is all about. It's not about you getting dusted back off and put right back in the Garden of Eden and saying, go get them, tiger, try again. You could have a gazillion chances and you would still fail. No, somebody has to stand in for you. You're not able to do it. You and I aren't able. We're not able to create a world of peace and unity and we're not able to repair or fix ourselves. The problem's too deep and pervasive and too close. Jesus had to come and be our savior for us. That's what Christmas is all about and that's good news. That's the best news in the world. That's why we can sing songs like joy to the world and really mean it. Because that's the best news anybody in the world could ever hear. God and sinners reconciled because of Jesus Christ. No other religion offers that. No other system offers that. No other philosophy offers that. That's the meaning and the message of Christmas. And you can celebrate that this year. And you can share that this year. Amen?